Welcome to BioCentury This Week, the weekly podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. I'm Jeff Cranmer, one of the executive editors here at BioCentury. And joining me today are... I am Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Simone and Selena, thanks for joining today as we take a look at the emerging circular RNA field and the psychedelic pipeline as it moves toward proof of concept. And in a little bit, we'll bring in our colleague Josh Berlin to preview BioCentury's two fall conferences, the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit in October in Kendall Square, and the China Healthcare Summit, which returns to Shanghai this November. Alrighty, enthusiasm for RNA-based medicines remains high after the success of mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. Companies are now looking to RNA therapies for a very wide set of indications. Among these companies, there are over a dozen biotechs now exploring circularized RNA. It's an interesting group. All are preclinical. Nearly all are private. There are two that are units of larger public companies. Investors have taken notice. The group has raised over a billion dollars. Top money raisers among them include Orbital, a U.S. company with a partnership with Beam. It's raised $270 million. And Orna has raised more than $320 million. And La Ronde has raised close to $500 million. So what's the attraction? Selena, why, why are investors starting to back these companies? And, and what's the promise of circular RNA over your regular old RNA? Well, the main thing is stability. So the major route by which RNA gets broken down in the body is by nucleases cutting it up at the ends of the linear transcripts. Those are called exonucleases that do that. So with the, when you circularize that construct, you know, there's no longer any ends. It's a circle. So the main route of degradation goes away and it can have a much longer half-life. And so if you're, say, developing a vaccine, what that can do is it can buy you time to present that antigen for longer. And the hope would be that you then get a bigger and more durable immune immune response at the other end. But there's this is like you said, it's a highly flexible platform because you can encode all kinds of therapeutic entities in there. So say it's a genetic disease where you get a loss of function and you, you no longer have a particular protein. You could use this as a way to replace that protein. And because of the longer half-life, the idea would be you wouldn't have to dose patients as frequently. Selena, I'm sure for some people, this concept of circular RNA is new. I, by myself, for the record, spent a lot of time when I was in the lab working with RNA and trying for it not to get degraded. So I can certainly appreciate the value of it not being so subject to exonucleases. But I just want to clarify, the circular RNA is translated, right? And so it's actually going in in the same way as mRNA as, as an agent that gets translated to protein. And if it's, a, if it's a vaccine, that protein is the immunogen. And if it's a 
therapy, the protein is the, is the product that is created from the circular RNA, correct? Yeah, in most cases, that'll, that'll be true. But like we said, this is a highly versatile format. So some companies are putting other things in there as well. Um, you can put in these sponges to sequester microRNAs, or you can encode an siRNA. But a lot of the time, yes, they want the mRNA to get turned into a protein or a peptide or, or an antibody. You can encode antibodies this way. So, Selena, let's just talk for a minute about the companies. Jeff mentioned three that have raised large amounts of money, Laurent, Orna, and Orbital. A, a couple of, you know, we don't know because they're supported by the parents' company. And there are some that have raised less. We don't know that much about them. The companies that are doing, you know, have, have raised these significant amounts of money. What do we know about them? So, Laurent has been a bit vague in what it's planning to do with its platform, but the, the list of indications it says it's exploring is quite quite wide. Then we have Orna and a company called Circio or Circio, I'm not even sure how they pronounce it, um, both going after cancer indications. Uh, Orna recently had some data at the 2020-23 meeting of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy in leukemia, showing some preclinical proof of concept. And Circio uh, is focusing on solid tumors. And so far, they say, as far as they know, they're the only ones who've been able to express one of these circular RNAs in a solid tumor. So that's where they're focused. I think we can also learn a few things by looking at their investors. So Orna, for example, last August raised a $221 million Series B round, which is quite a hefty round. And that was from Merck and Co., as well as MPM Capital and uh, BioImpact. But I think that company is interesting because they've got not only Merck and Co., but also other pharma, you know, corporate VCs and farmers, Estalas, Bristol Myers in there, and Taiho Ventures. I think if you look at Orbital, and Laurent, I mean, Laurent's got a $440 million Series B. That's from two years ago in August. August seems to be a good month for funding these companies. Yeah, and then Orbital uh, back in April, $270 million. At the time, that was the largest Series A round of this year. Arch Venture Partners led the round. And uh, as I said earlier, Orbital has Beam Therapeutics as a partner, as well as some tech out of Stanford. And we know one last thing is that Flagship is in the you know, $440 million raise for uh, Laurent. We recently, of course, had Nubar Afayan, who runs Flagship, of course, on the BioCentury show. And we know that they tend to be in these very cutting edge new spaces as well. So we've got some really solid investors in this space. At the same time, Selena is some real pharma interest. So there's definitely, this is a space that farmers care about, right? That's right. I mean, we probably should acknowledge um, that Laurent recently hit some choppy waters, right? When it couldn't replicate some of its data. So at the, you know, right now in the immediate past, um, I think that's shaken some investor confidence. But, you know, companies are all, that's, they're just doubling down on getting their publications out and showing, no, in fact, this technology really is longer lived and it has all these potential advantages that they hope will translate 
that's, uh, that's something that the, that the field in general is dealing with. And we were told by multiple people that it is not just affecting Iran, but affecting all of them at the moment. Um, the first clinical candidates that might get to the clinic and produce some human proof of concept data could come as early as a uh, second half of next year. And just to clarify, Selena, these are all private companies, right? And so when we're talking about the investors, this is what the companies are telling us. That's right. And there are conversations with investors. They, you know, they talk about what happened to the round and they want to see that data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's a broad group here. It's not just U.S. companies, although those are among the ones that have raised the most. We have five companies out of Asia, three from China, two from Korea. We have a South American biotech in the game, Site Bio, and one Swedish player. And I'm sure when you have investors like Flagship and Arch in the game, we're going to see more companies joining into this space. But I want to turn now to another um, another pretty hot area, and it is psychedelic drugs. Um, a whole wave of companies are now exploring psychedelics as tools to treat depression and other mental health conditions. Selena did a deep dive here, and she found psilocybin-based products are among the most abundant of these and the most advanced. Now, Selena, one thing I'm curious about is the business model here, uh, especially when it comes to psilocybin, natural product, obviously. Tell us a bit about what you found. Right. So several of these are natural products. So the way companies are trying to get IP initially is formulating them in a new way or putting on a chemical tweak. Um, deuterating is one, you know, is the mechanism that... Um, Cybin's going after. Um, but a lot of the first wave products, they act very similarly to natural psilocybin. Another mechanism for getting IP is the manufacturing process. So there are a handful of companies that are, say, engineering the plants, the mushrooms that psilocybin comes from and manufacturing that, that process. Most are going with a synthetic route or biosynthesis can also lead you to, to a differentiated product there in IP. Selena, this has sort of been one of these areas that has kind of hovered on the edge a little bit of standard drug development. I don't think most people think about magic mushrooms as traditional drug development. It seems to really be making inroads, maybe since, you know, esketamine broke through. And and I wonder whether you think that this is sort of going to have a a durable, lasting effect, whether you think that there's going to be a big growth of this kind of area inside therapies for psychiatric disorders and so on. Right. So IP for this initial wave of products is not the only kind of challenge with the business model. These are profoundly mind-altering substances, right? So they require monitoring of the patient. And when it comes to something like a psilocybin, it's most of the time meant to be given as a package treatment with psychotherapy. So you have to have these, you have to have a specially trained therapist who understands how to work with a psychedelic. Those are limited in number and they only are at specialized clinics generally. And then you need to have these psychotherapy sessions kind of before, during, and after the psychedelic experiences. So it's a very high touch kind of situation is not your traditional. And, and most of the time, you know, a lot of like one of the lead indications is depression um, or anxiety. And, and 
traditional drugs for these indications are pills. Generally, you take them daily over long periods of time. This is like a this is like a one-time experience or two or three session experience, and then hopefully not again for a long time. So it's just a very different kind of business model. And I think we've already seen in the the ketamine field, not with S-ketamine, Johnson & Johnson's drug, but other companies that have sprung out to do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Some of those clinics have already closed down because it turned out to just be too hard to make a profit. So I think, you know, one of the big questions for investors in the long term is, can we minimize the psychedelic experience, like make it shorter? Because psilocybin, I mean, you're talking about a four hour, six hour experience that, you know, takes like a day, right? And you're not working or driving a car or whatever. So can you make it shorter? That's one question. And then is it possible to just tweak the chemistry in such a way where you can completely dissociate that mind-altering experience from the therapeutic benefit. And there's just really two camps on that. There's a lot of people who believe it's actually the, the psychedelic experience that jogs you out of a well-worn mental rut that is the thing that's causing the depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress, whatever it is, and that it's critical. And then other people are just on the other side of that. And so we are seeing some companies crop up with some chemistry platforms to to kind of tweak which serotonin receptors their molecules bind to and how they bind to them and and seeing if they can get rid of that um, psychedelic experience altogether. All right. And Selena has a pipeline of these companies in her article that's up on our website. Clearly a space we'll be following. It'll be interesting to see if they do begin to get more traction with investors. All right, summer is coming to an end, for better or for worse. And with September right around the corner, we get back into conferences. And we have two for you here at BioCentury. October, we'll have the East-West Biopharma Summit. That will be in Kendall Square in Boston, or rather Cambridge. And that will be in early October. And then uh, a month later in Shanghai, we'll have the return of the China Healthcare Summit. We put on both with our friends at Bay Helix. And we have our friend Josh Berlin, uh, head of BD here at BioCentury, to tell us a little bit more about what to expect at the conferences. Josh, let's... Uh, Let's start with East West. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the podcast and uh, love to hear a little bit about what is in store. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. And we have two great events coming up uh, this fall, as Jeff mentioned. I think both are going to really give you an opportunity to meet with cross-border peers at a C-level, both on the company side as well as on the investor side. So for our East-West Summit, this is our second addition. Last year, we were in the Bay Area. This year, as Jeff mentioned, we're going to be right there in Kendall Square, the Marriott there in Cambridge. And we're going to focus on global development strategies. So that'll be the theme of the event. Uh, we organized this event as well as the China Summit with our friends at McKinsey and Company. They're our insights partner. So they will produce a report for each event that'll be chock full of data based off of interviews that they're doing with uh, KOLs and uh, some of their own analysis, including analysis from the data in BCIQ, our Biocentury's database. 
For the East-West Summit, we have a great lineup of speakers already confirmed. We have Chris Wiebacher of Biogen. We have uh, the heads of R&D for Takeda, Andy Plump, head of R&D for BMS, Bristol-Myers, uh, Robert Plenge, and just a really, really strong group of presenting companies as well. So we already have over 30 presenting companies confirmed for that event. We will sell out. Uh, we are on pace to sell out of 50-plus presenting companies. If you'd like to get involved, like to download the brochure, uh, see uh, all the details, please check out our website, biocenturyeastwest.com. You could also apply to present. Jeff and team are the folks that are reviewing each of the applications to present, and we do have a, a few spots left. So please take advantage of that opportunity. I will say the other part about East-West that I think is really important, You know, I'm sure everybody has been reading about the cross-border deals. You know, that's certainly been an area that, you know, Simone and Selena and Jeff have been covering quite a lot this year in BioCentury. We're seeing just a tremendous, maybe even a record-setting year this year in cross-border deals. They're going both ways. There are opportunities for Western biotechs to continue to out-license and monetize their pipeline by finding partners in China and Asia. And increasingly, obviously, we're also seeing companies refilling their pipelines or filling their pipelines by in-licensing uh, innovation from China and Asia. So for those who have already done deals or for those who are thinking about deals, you don't want to sort of miss out on this trend. We think the East-West Summit's a perfect place to do that. This year, you know, we picked those dates at the beginning of October for a reason. That is a, a major holiday. In China, it's a time when many Asia and China biotech execs travel to the U.S., and we do expect them to be there in person in Kendall Square looking for potential partners. Yeah, and you, you mentioned the presenting company list. I'm curious, Josh, what types of presenting companies are we expecting this year? Yeah, good question, Jeff. So for the East-West Summit, we are expecting a mix. So there will be China and Asia biotechs who are looking to find partners in the West, looking to globalize their innovations. So we have a good group of those kinds of companies. We also are going to have US and European biotechs that are looking to uh, themselves globalize their, their innovations by finding partners in Asia, whether that is China pharma companies or whether that is you know large um, big pharma companies that have operations, obviously, on, on both sides of the Pacific. And we will have, you know, also some case studies that we will examine in more detail at the event, uh, which will feature some of those presenting companies as well, talking about where they've done deals in the past. Sounds good. Yeah. And just looking at the list of names, I see Hua, big diabetes company, Neuropath, I know, just raised $100 million in Silico, obviously a company that's been very much, uh, very active, a lot of deals, and Jayco Bio. So a lot, a lot of big name Chinese companies there. And we do expect companies from across Asia to be in the house. Then speaking of Asia, Shanghai, Josh, uh, I know we haven't put on that conference in person since 2019, right before the pandemic hit. We just have a little bit of time left, but maybe top line, uh, what should we expect at the China Summit? And how is it differentiated from the East-West Summit? 
Yeah, good point, Jeff. So this is the first sort of fully in-person China Healthcare Summit since 2019. We've done a mix of uh, virtual and hybrid since then, but we are really looking forward to getting back and engaging with those China biotechs that are really emerging as, as innovators that are looking to globalize their innovations. For that event, we will have two days of cross-border discussions that will include strategic panels. It'll include one-to-one partnering. It'll include a lot of C-level networking. McKinsey will issue a report. We will have a presenting company track. So we are now recruiting both Western and Asian companies to present on stage in Shanghai. And we do have already a great program lined up. We have the heads of both FERDA and RDPAC, the two main trade associations, rarely on stage together, will be on stage together at our event in, in Shanghai talking about some of the policy reforms that have happened in the last few years to support innovation. We also have several heads of China or China GMs, as they call them there. And so we have the GM of Sanofi China. We have the GM of Merck MSD China. Uh, Roberta Lipson, who many folks know from United Family Care, will be there as well. So we have a great, great program. We think it's important for folks to to get back at it, get back to work, and and get back to meeting each other in person and having those discussions and um, learning from each other and, and hopefully you know learning how to help each other accelerate drug development. So we are looking forward to being back in Shanghai. I, I personally haven't been back myself in four years, so looking forward to catching up with some old friends and um, having this important dialogue that we're going to host in Shanghai. All right. Thanks for that, Josh. Biocentury.com, go to the events tab. You can find information on both conferences there. As Josh said, we're still looking for uh, presenting companies. Uh, We have a few spots left. If you think you're the right fit for the conference, uh, reach out to us here at Biocentury. Yeah. And Jeff, one more plug, if I could. We do still have an early bird rate for the China Healthcare Summit. That expires on Friday, August 25th. So if you want to get your best savings for that event, please make sure to register or apply to present before then. Sounds good. Thanks, Josh. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 